and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are discussing chapters 17 to 25 of Agnes Gray and talking about the influence of the Bronte parents, especially their mother, with author Sharon Wright. So in chapter 17, aptly titled Confessions, Agnes is feeling a little more reflective than usual, especially when it comes to her looks. She finds herself drawn to the looking glass, examining her own reflection and says, I could discover no beauty in those marked features, that pale hollow cheek and ordinary dark brown hair. There might be intellect in the forehead, there might be expression in the dark grey eyes, but what of that? And I loved this whole paragraph there was a lot more of it there other than just that line and I think we're getting like so many echoes of the instances in like Jane Eyre and Villette and I guess Mm -hmm. Wuthering Heights I still haven't read it so I don't know (laughs) Uh, of just women comparing themselves to like their wealthy and most of the time more beautiful counterparts Mm-hmm. except not in Tenant of Wildfell Hall because that's like the one tree hill of Bronte novels and everyone is fit from what I remember. Yeah, yeah everyone yeah. looks pretty good, Everyone's I think. Everyone's pretty yeah. sexy. We even get a little animal comparison and the way that animals are treated differently based on their beauty. So she says, a little girl loves her bird. Why? Because it lives and feels, because it is helpless and harmless. A toad likewise lives and feels and is equally helpless and harmless. But though she would not hurt a toad, she cannot love it like the bird with its graceful form, soft feathers and bright sparkling eyes. Oh, bright speaking eyes. That's nicer. I think I ruined the quote when I said sparkling. That was a bad edit. (laughs) So I guess uh, Agnes is like a kind of a toad bird hybrid. Because like she's at once the bird and also she is the toad. Mm -hmm. so we also learn in this chapter that rosalie did go to the ball and sir thomas did propose to her and she is very excited at the prospect of the fuss and finery and her i wrote money moon i meant honeymoon but i actually think money moon works as well (laughs) i thought you meant money moon as a joke and i was like no (laughs) it was a typo but i left it in because i liked it Uh, and she loves the attention but she is not super thrilled at the prospect of actually marrying Sir Thomas. Mm -hmm. And Agnes is so concerned about the match that she actually goes and tells Mrs. Murray. Yeah, which is really hilarious. There's no stop in this train. (laughs) No, one, you're not going to stop it. But also we have this instance, again, she does this quite a lot, but you have this instance of the governess going to the lady of the household and saying, I think this is a mistake. Mm-hmm. But Agnes doesn't tell us about it, really. She just, like, reports it very quickly. And this is a moment of action and decisiveness and going above her station. And it's just almost like you pass over it in a second. Um, yeah. Mrs. Murray just, like, laughs at her, basically, uh, and is not bothered. Rosalie's main concern is whether or not she's going to have a long engagement because if it's a long engagement she has longer to just flirt with all of her lads yeah and then as soon as she says that to agnes agnes is like oh fine i just i don't care anymore yeah like i can't even with these people yeah so it's not just mr green and melty meltem and mr hatfield who she does try to win back but he's suddenly immune to her charms and i think this is absolutely like spot on with his character like he seems mm-hmm. like the sort who like once you spend him 
That yeah, is his like his, his pride is virus. way too damaged. Yeah. yeah. But obviously, we know that she has set her sights on Mr. Weston as well, and she is doing everything she can to get a response from him. And Agnes knows it. And I think that one of the things that is making this time so difficult for Agnes as well is that she knows, that Ag- uh, that Rosalie knows that she, Agnes, likes mm-hmm. Mr. Weston, or at least yeah. suspects that she likes Mr. Weston. And so she's going to be really aware of everything Rosalie's doing and also her reactions because she doesn't want to like add any mm-hmm. more satisfaction onto it. And then another great bit of animal imagery, which really stuck with me afterwards, it says dogs are not the only creatures which, when gorged to the throat, will yet glow over what they cannot devour and grudge the smallest morsel to a starving brother. Yeah, that was pretty brutal. That actually put me in the mind of Emily Bronte. Yeah. That quote. Mm-hmm. Emily sat there like, Anne, I've got a line for you. This is this is a good one. Look at these dogs. So one of Rosalie's tactics is that she visits the cottages. And this is really smart because uh, not only do they then start dropping into conversation with people that she's like attentive and condescending in the Lady Catherine de Berg sense, mm-hmm. not like condescending in the modern sense. Uh, but also it doubles her chances of bumping into Mr. Weston while she's out and about. And then to make matters worse, she's actively keeping Agnes and Mr. Weston apart. She only goes walking with her sister. She won't take Agnes with her. She takes Agnes's seat in the pew at church so she can't look at him. And then yeah. she doesn't even let her go to church in the afternoon anymore. This um, would perfectly fit with like a high school adaptation, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think all of this maneuvering put me in the mind of like so just some high school like antics. So Rosalie and Matilda, that's not even the worst bit. Okay, so this bit really made me laugh actually. So Rosalie and Matilda even start like sneaking out in the afternoons when they go mm-hmm. to church. They sneak out to church. Uh, they tell her they're not going to go and then they'll be like, oh, we changed our mind and then leave while she's getting ready or they'll just leave and not tell her and then it'll just be too late for her to join them and I've just got Mm -hmm. this image of her like trying to get all of her stuff together and they're already like in the fields and she's like so yeah that's going in my dark comedy version of the film and then when they see him they're like oh she doesn't she doesn't care about church anymore yeah she like loves reading now she's got that new she's got that new book she reads sorry So the other person that they don't want Agnes to see is poor old Nancy Brown. And they tell her, again, she's too fond of reading and drawing, which are both tasks that they give her to do. Mm -hmm. And again, I just want to really emphasise that, especially in this chapter, being an employee, being dependent on her wage and her future references, she does have to take it all on the chin. And she says, I was used to wearing a placid, smiling countenance when my heart was bitter within me. Yeah. But it it isn't just her status as an employee. It's her interest in Mr. Weston. She says that she burns to contradict Rosalie, but she she really can't, can she? Because like no. we said just now, she's going to like reveal her interest, which would only spur Rosalie on. It would embarrass Agnes. And potentially that's also going to put Mr. Weston in an awkward spot because Rosalie and Matilda would bring it up if they... You know, if Agnes ever said to yeah. them, they'd tell everyone, like, lives would be ruined, his career would be jeopardised, hers would be jeopardised. And in case you didn't think this chapter could get any worse, 
they finally take Snap away and they sell him to the rat catcher who is particularly known for being cruel to his animals. And she receives a letter. This is all in one paragraph. She also (laughs) receives a letter saying that her dad is sick. And if you're ready for some more prophetic fallacy, I seem to see the black clouds gathering around my native hills and to hear the angry muttering of a storm that was about to burst and desolate our hearth. Yeah. True story. When it rains, it pours. It's all going badly. So (laughs) in chapter 18, mirth and mourning. There we go. Um, Rosalie finally just like fucks off and gets married. And after the wedding, Rosalie comes to say goodbye to Agnes, who I guess was not invited. So they're having a little moment. But here here is I'm going to take issue with Anne Bronte because that is a missed opportunity. That wedding, we could have gotten some really good action there. So, who else doesn't like weddings? Who else didn't? Was it Elizabeth Gaskell who didn't give us a wedding? Yeah, Gaskell give didn't us give us a wedding. wedding. <laughs> give Jeez. us the wedding. I mean, she could have given us the wedding. She could have given us a ball. Like she could have just given us something. Something that would have given us some good drama, right? Anyway, so we drama got this light, moment. Agnes Gray. Yeah, I die, oof. Agnes. If I do an adaptation of Agnes Grey, throwing in the wedding. Yeah. People want to see it. It's got to happen. So they have this moment, which is very interesting. Um, And it says, uh, she gave me a hasty kiss and was hurrying away, but suddenly returning, embraced me with more affection than I thought her capable of invincing and departed with tears in her eyes. Poor girl. I really loved her then and forgave her from my heart all the injuries she had done to me and others also. She had not half known it, I was sure. And I prayed to God to pardon. I prayed God pardon her too. Sweet moment. Yeah. And I I know that later on when we're discussing listener comments, a few people noticed a big change in Agnes's um, relationship with Rosalie, or at least the way she responded Mm -hmm. to her in the later chapters and I think this is that moment yeah yeah this is a a turning point so now her principal tormentor is gone Agnes starts getting out and about again visiting Nancy and attending church but uh no Mr. Weston so I mean he's at the church but he's not like hopping out of any bushes bachelorette style anymore so that's really upsetting um whispering at her he just just whispers at her hey what's going on hello He's got he's try he's on the down low with this relationship. He's that's why he's gotta <laughs> hop out of bushes and whisper. Um Matilda, who uh with her siblings uh married or at school is now solely underneath her mother's watchful eye. Um she's still too young to be out in society, and her mom has strictly banned her from going to the stables or doing just anything that she loves. So it's a bit of a lonely time for her too. Yeah, um, poor Matilda. I know, I'm starting to feel for Matilda. I mean, I'm still mad about Snap, but you know. Mrs. Murray begins nagging Agnes about being better company for Matilda and suggests that it's Agnes's self-indulgence and indolence that are preventing her from achieving her goal as a governess. And she very helpfully outlines what that goal is for Agnes's benefit and um, our readers as well. So here she says... The young lady's proficiency in elegance is more of a consequence to the governess than to her own, as well as the world. If she wishes to prosper in her vocation, she must devote all her energies to her business. All her ideas and all her ambition will tend to the accomplishment of that one object. 
When we wish to decide upon the merits of a governess, we naturally look at the young ladies she professes to have educated and judge accordingly. The judicious governess knows this. She knows that while she lives in obscurity, her pupils' virtues and defects will be open to every eye and that unless she loses sight of herself in their cultivation, she need not hope for success. Loaded. Yeah, almost so much there. So much there. I mean, also, there's so many ideas in that that are like still prevalent within the workplace today of like, you need to devote your entire self to this career. And I would say that especially in like with like publishing and like theater and any kind of like arts and cultural sector where it's like if you're in it, you need to be 100 percent in it. Every moment you're awake and breathing, you need to be. Well, that's why they put all of those gyms and bars and swimming pools in like the tech world like down in yes san francisco don't make friends your co-worker your co-workers yeah. are your friends and family we're all you, you need. don't need to go out after work because there's beers in the fridge i almost wish we had that speech earlier so we sort of like kind of understand to frame expected. their expectations yeah yeah of a governess it's an excellent summary of the very real expectations that a family would place on a governess and uh yeah they're a little they're a little high So then one day while out walking, Matilda and Agnes do come across Mr. Weston. Matilda tells him that Rosalie is doing very well and enjoying Paris and then uh, runs after her dog who's chasing a young rabbit. So while she's herring about, Mr. Weston and Agnes finally. (laughs) FYI, that was a a pun. Like a hair. Yeah, like a hair. Intentional, everyone. Right. Intentional pun. (laughs) Mr. Weston and Agnes finally get a chance to catch up. So they discuss whether or not Rosalie will be happy and that for people of rank, marrying into a wealthy family is considered doing good by your children. Uh, Matilda rejoins them. She's brandishing a dead rabbit. More more animal business here in this movie with uh, great chilling lines like, I pretended to want to save it. And didn't you hear it scream? I love that bit. I don't like it, but... <laughs> I pre. I it don't is, know. It is chilling. Yeah, it's yeah. great dialogue. Um, well, it tells you everything you need to know about Matilda. Yeah, it's Agnes wasn't like gonna do anything with that. Come on, that was <laughs> never gonna happen. So then, Mister Weston melts back into the mist for a while, but luckily, after depositing the hair with a cottager, they bump into him again. And this time he has bluebells for Agnes, saying he remembered that they were among her favorites. So we're going to pause and swoon here because that's lovely. And I also will say bluebells, I believe the Victorian like meaning for them is humility. Oh, I thought you were going to say shagging. <laughs> no. no, not as sexy. I think they also have a, like an everlasting love as well but it's the way that they hang their heads uh humility oh. is what they mean so do you think just, so he's yeah. being humble to her he's humbling mm-hmm. himself to her yeah i think so oh my god <laughs> that's even more to it mr weston mentions that he had been told agnes was turning into a bookworm uh and then matilda butts in saying yes that's true and agnes tells him not to listen to her bullshit. She asks him if he's anti-women uh, studying, uh, which is 
a surprising like little sassy clapback from Agnes actually. Yeah, I think that's really. She's like, "Oh, you you don't like educated women, mate. Come on." <laughs> Come on, I'm reading books. What's your problem? And he's just like, no, no, I think that that's fine. But um, I just don't think they should only study. There's other stuff to do. And then he like winks. He just fades into the background. Disappears into the hedge like Homer Simpson. (laughs) Uh, While Agnes acknowledges to the reader that this exchange is unremarkable, it has awakened like the hope in her again, as it should, Agnes, because come on, there were flowers. So she says... Our wishes are like tinder. The flint and steel of circumstances are continually striking out sparks which vanish immediately unless they chance to fall upon the tinder of our wishes. Then they instantly ignite and the flames and the flame of hope is kindled in a moment. I love that line. She receives a letter from her mother urging her to come home as her father's health has worsened. Um, interesting moment when mrs murray seems to be surprised to hear that agnes actually wants to go home yeah and um asks her to consider other women who are uh less well situated and other dying clergymen whose daughters are not as fortunate uh as she is so yeah the whole household's response is just basically to languidly take their time about seeing her off which really you know delays agnes and sets this journey off on like the the wrong foot she's already just anxious about her father so it's all total mess um and after this rough journey she finally makes it home and she finds her mother and sister pale and sad and her father is dead so in chapter 19 the letter we see the family grieve a little bit yeah but we know that Mrs. Gray is the super practical woman and with only one of her children it's just time for her to roll up her sleeves and think about the future and none of them really like dwell in it I think no. it's about two weeks before we kind of come back into the the story I think so Mrs. Gray does not want to go and live with her daughter, Mr. Richardson. She is just like, I'm going to be this financial burden. You should be putting the money aside for your family. I'm still young-ish. Mm-hmm. Like, I can work. I can look after myself. And then in the future, when I'm not in a position to do that, we will all be in a better situation for you to take care of me then, rather than mm-hmm. kind of needlessly doing it now. And I just think that's like, she's such a good role model, because it would just be putting... Yeah her daughter in a really difficult place like quite early on in her relationship Mm -hmm. so she decides to open a school and she asks Agnes if she wouldn't mind leaving the Murrays and running it with her and obviously Agnes agrees and because she's been saving all of this money and the family never had to use it for their debts she's raking it in she's got all this school money she's like yeah we can do that yeah I've got it we can start the school that money is gonna come in handy guys So about a fortnight after Mr. Gray's death, a letter comes from Mrs. Gray's dad and he says that he will actually just make her a lady again, which is so nice of him. And he's going to remember the girls in his will. So nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, She just, there's just this little thing that she needs to do and which is just say that she completely regrets her marriage. Right. Yeah. And this has been years. So he doesn't even say like, hey, so sorry to hear about your husband's death. That sucks. And listen, okay, I'll be honest. Part of me was like, Mrs. Gray, you should say 
<laughs> that you regret. You should do it. Yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking about Agnes going to work and yeah, anyway. And then this next paragraph made me feel awful about myself. So uh, Mrs. Gray's response is to say, get my desk, Agnes, and send these things away. I will answer the letter directly. But first, as I may be depriving you both of a legacy, it is just that I tell you what I mean to say. I shall say that he is mistaken in supposing that I can regret the birth of my daughters who have been the pride of my life and are likely to be the comfort of my old age or the 30 years I have passed in the company of my best and dearest friend. That, had our misfortunes been three times as great as they were, unless they had been of my bringing on, I should still be the more rejoiced to have shared them with your father and administered what consolation I was able and had his sufferings in illness been ten times what they were, I would not, I could not regret having watched over and laboured to relieve them. That, if he had married a richer wife, misfortunes and trials would not, would no doubt have come upon him still. While I am an egotist enough to imagine that no other woman could have cheered him through them so well, not that I am superior to the rest, but I was made for him and he for me and I can no more repent the hours days and years of happiness we have spent together and which neither could have had without the other than I can the privilege of having been his his nurse in sickness and his comfort in affliction will this do children or shall I say we're all very sorry for what has happened during the last 30 years and my daughters wish they had never been born but (laughs) since they have had that misfortune they will be thankful for any trifle their grandpapa will be kind enough to bestow and she's lucky I'm not her daughter because I would have been like trifle please (laughs) I might have too it's interesting um as well because we've we've read so many novels where this sort of like inheritance comes at the 11th mm-hmm. hour and she takes um, it back off the table and she takes it back off the table. So it seems it's such a, I mean, thinking about the end of Jane Eyre, thinking about the mm-hmm. end of North and South, you know, it's like, it's actually, too easy. No. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think it's moments like this as well. Just make it really clear, like where Agnes's snark is coming from. Cause she is snarky. She doesn't say it all the time. She's, she holds it in. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I also think it's really interesting to have this letter come the chapter after Rosalie's marriage. Oh, yeah. And I think That's it serves point. as like a really interesting reminder that choosing um, money over love to maintain comfort is an empty choice. And I think that the chapters that come after are going to then hammer that message home again. So it's really interesting mm-hmm. placed, that letter. Um, yeah. And so neither Agnes or her mother or her sister ever hear from their grandfather again and he just leaves his wealth instead to some already wealthy cousins. Rude. In chapter 20, The Farewell, Agnes and Mrs. Gray settle on a fashionable seaside town for their school. So a little Scarborough action, really, there. Um, The only thing that's left now is to go home and inform the Murrays of her departure and, of course, um, a farewell to her childhood home. Um, she's dreading saying goodbye to Mr. Weston, but she also uh, never sees him except at church. So where is that bush that he needs to jump, jump out of? <laughs> she tells herself this is the proof that she needed, that her feelings are ungrounded, uh, saying, you might have known such happiness was not for you. So, so sad. sad. 
But one day after a fortnight and a visit to Nancy Brown, he melts out of the mist again and he strides towards her. He must have heard of the heavy loss I had sustained. He has, he expressed no sympathy, offered no condolence, but almost the first words he uttered here, how is your mother? So now listen, I know it's because of the Pride and Prejudice movie, but imagine Hottie Maddie McFadden just walking out of the mist and giving you some regards to your mom. Yeah. Great. Another little screeny moment, I think. It's great. Just jumps out of a bush. How's your mum? You know what? Mr. Weston has some game, you guys. I think Mr. Weston has got so much game. Agnes does tell Mr. Weston that she's leaving to open a school with her mother. Mr. Weston tries to wheedle out of her whether uh, um, she's going to miss anyone or not. Yeah, He's like, so anyone you feel a bit yeah. sad about saying goodbye to? <laughs> and... um. You know, she's not really taking the bait here. She's annoyed because obviously um, she's not able to discuss how much she's going to miss him. Yeah. I don't think she has the Yeah, she doesn't have the vocabulary for it yet. She doesn't really quite know where she stands. Her dad has just died. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. And he's putting her in like an uncomfortable position. And she's like, yeah, annoyed at him. She's like, don't ask yeah. me that. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of like. Oof, awkward timing because they yeah. just need, they they need someone needs to say something. Here is the moment, but they just uh, it's yeah. not coming together. Um, so instead, they discuss Matilda and Rosalie with Agnes saying that she um, maybe even prefers Matilda, who is at least honest. And this brings up Rosalie's deceitful nature. Now, Lauren, did this line make you think that perhaps there was a moment, Mister Weston? maybe was falling for Rosalie's charms because he Mm. says artful is she I saw she was giddy and vain and now he added after a pause I can well believe she was artful too but so excessively so as to assume an aspect of extreme simplicity and unguarded openness yes continued he musingly that accounts for some little things that puzzled me a trifle before so I know, so that's either him being like, I'm so confused why this woman is flirting with me. Mm-hmm. Like, I just wonder if there's like even a part of him that just for a second was like, what's going on? What's going on? What are you saying, yeah. Ridley? Yeah. Yeah. I think he was puzzled. I think he, yeah, I think he. I don't think he's like 100% in, but I think he was yeah. like, I do think his interest was maybe peaked. Yeah, I think he was curious. And um, I almost wonder, too, because he thinks so highly of Agnes. It's like what's interesting here is um, him maybe not jumping to conclusions uh, about Rosalie's behavior because, like, he thinks that might be thinking of Agnes poorly, if that makes any sense. Because Agnes yeah, is the governess. It's like be her. casting aspersions on her yeah. abilities. Yeah. Yeah. And also like her her abilities and her influence. So I guess he, he might have been just like, I don't know what's going on mm-hmm. here. And also we don't know what Rosalie, like we get very little of Rosalie's dialogue to him. Yeah. And like what she was saying. We know that she's been doing everything she can to turn Mr. Weston off Agnes and saying like mm-hmm. stuff that she really thinks is going to, so yeah, maybe he wasn't falling for it because he definitely keeps jumping out of bushes at Agnes, but... Yeah, he he's trying. Yeah. Oh, I wonder too if one of the reasons he doesn't like... He can't talk to her in front of Rosalie or the family. 
Like he always waits until mm-hmm. she's like borderline on her own. And like yeah, even he does. Yeah, and Matilda is less of a threat than Rosalie is. And mm-hmm. Rosalie's married now and so suddenly he can come in out into the yeah. open. They talk and walk for a while and uh when he leaves her and goes back he goes back the way he came. And alone with her thoughts, she admits to herself, Yes, Edward Weston. I always forget his first name. Edward. Oh yeah, I couldn't remember it. I yeah. Yes, Edward Weston. I could indeed be happy in a house full of enemies, which I love that line. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) Yes, Edward Weston. I could indeed be happy in a house full of enemies if I had but one friend. And if that friend were you, though, we might be far apart, seldom to hear from each other, still more seldom to meet through though toil and trouble and vexation might surround me still. It would be too much happiness for me to even dream of. But House Full of Enemies. Yeah. That's my band name. I know how that feels. <laughs> so eventually, it really is time to say a final farewell to Mr. Weston. Um, she says, and now the last Sunday was come and the last service. I really- Agnes tries to... That line really like the last, like she's counting like all of the lasts because um, in yeah. the first chapter, it's the last farewell to her cat and the last time she'll see the pony yeah. and the pigeons. And now she's doing the same, which I think like Mr. Weston is like, she's putting him on the same level as her childhood home. She never says goodbye to Horton Lodge or where the Bloomfields live or anything else, but she says mm-hmm. goodbye to her childhood home twice. And she says goodbye to Mr. Weston, the last goodbye. Twice. Yeah. yeah. After the church service, uh, Matilda just, you know, fucks off with the Mrs. Greens. And um, out of the shadows comes Mr. Weston to say goodbye once more. And he says, it is possible we may meet again. Will it be of any consequence to you whether we do or not? And she responds, yes, I should be very glad to see you again. So she goes off. She waltzes into chapter 21. She waltzes into her new life. She is very happy in some regards because she says, uh, there was indeed a considerable difference between working with my mother in a school of our own and working as a hireling among strangers, despised and trampled upon by old and young. I got to tell you, mum, I love you, but I would prefer to be trampled on than in a school with you. <laughs> That's never going to work, is it? No. It wouldn't. To each his own. <laughs> yeah. I would work with Mrs. Gray. I'd work, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she still just can't help but like expect Mr. Weston to pop out of the shadows at any given moment, like slide mm-hmm. out from under her bed or like she cracks an egg and he's hiding inside it. I don't know. Because he just, he just appears. And I think that yeah, doesn't help he does. either. He just is always, it's like the beginning of the first Harry Potter film. I don't know. Don't get me started. <laughs> Uh, so one morning she gets a letter from her sister and she's gutted because it isn't from Mr. Weston. And then she starts berating herself for feeling so disappointed by a letter from her sister. And uh, mm-hmm. there was a really good comment in the Facebook group made last week about her thoughts feeling claustrophobic. And I think that really mm-hmm. rings true in this scene where yeah. you just get paragraphs of her just beating herself up and spiraling and oh man, do I relate to Agnes Gray's spirals. <laughs> she 
she spirals. Uh, So her mum is a little perplexed that the sea air and the much nicer working conditions are not doing more to improve her spirits, which again, like strong mum, Northanger Abbey vibes here. Yeah. Like lovesick daughter, mum does not have a clue. And so Agnes decides to help those around her, calling back to the advice Mr. Weston gives to Nancy at the beginning of the book, so that when she receives a letter from Rosalie asking her to visit, she's like, yeah, I'll go. That's like a nice thing to do. Also, I can check in on Mr. Weston while I'm there. It'll be fine. (laughs) So in her letter, Rosalie admits to having led a dissipated life so far. Surprise, surprise. She Mm -hmm. tells Agnes that she's had a baby girl, later described as the girl who should have been a boy. Great line. And she tells Agnes that she means for Agnes to be the baby's governess when it's grown up. And she wants to show her her poodle and she wants to show her these little Italian paintings that she has. And how is Agnes meant to refuse that? Right? I mean, and Mr. I'm too Weston's curious. There. Yeah, I was so like, she's... get get out of there. Go now. So in chapter 22, appropriately named The Visit, we get to see what's become of Rosalie. So there is this understandable unease um, between the both of them as they try to establish their new relationship now that Rosalie is married and Agnes is her guest not her governess. So Agnes wants to know if Rosalie is happy, but doesn't feel like it's her place to ask. And Rosalie wants Agnes to be comfortable, but seems incapable of fully keeping Agnes like in her thoughts as becomes painfully evident. She prepares a room for Agnes to use when she was engaged with visitors or obliged to be with her mother-in-law or otherwise prevented, as she said, from enjoying the pleasure of my society. Agnes also asked to eat all of her meals in there to be out of the way. And uh, this forward thinking is a relief to Rosalie, who is stuck between wanting Agnes to be there and knowing that Sir Thomas and Lady Ashby like probably will be really uncomfortable with the governess around. Yeah. So it's just I and just... that is is great. That visit because you're just like, ooh, where do you fit? <laughs> But also, like, just the bit where she's, like, or otherwise prevented from enjoying the pleasure of your company. And it's, like, you're really just throwing in some catch-all here. It's, like, well, sometimes, you know, I'm going to have guests. And sometimes I've got to hang out with my mother-in-law. And some other times, I just don't want to be near you so you can sit in this room. It's so awkward and strange. And, like, she is is trying. relationship? She is trying. Jeez. Well, it's kind of interesting because you can see, too, that like Rosalie still needs like a mother figure, Mm -hmm. which she clearly sees Agnes as more of like a big sister figure. And there's some stuff with her and the mother-in-law that's not working. I mean, it's just like it's a whole it's a whole mess. Mm -hmm. Rosalie promises at some point to show her the library, but first she has to show off her fat poodle. Uh, The pair sit down and... um, Agnes asks after the family. So they're fine. Matilda's doing really well now that she has a fashionable governess. And uh, Agnes uh, also asks after Rosalie's friends. So uh, one thing that was very interesting was that uh, Rosalie was uh, super flirt with Harry Melton, Melt, Melty Meltem, down in London. And uh, Sir Thomas actually brought her back up to the country after seeing that behavior. Um, they also talk about Hatfield, who has married a much older spinster for her money. 
much to Rosalie's delight. And uh, finally, you know, she works in Mr. Weston to that conversation. And of course, Rosalie is like useless with this. She's like, yeah, I don't know. What I, I don't know what's up with that guy. I think he left like a month ago. Who yeah, knows? Who cares? Have a clue. Rosalie quickly moves the topic uh, onto her mother-in-law, who she has invited to live with her so that she could manage all of the household duties. But she's already regretting this and describes her as a tyrant, usurper, incubus, and spy. Which I think which is, is aspirational. <laughs> I like that. Tyrant, it's usurper, good. incubus, spy. Great, great book Album title name. too. Book title. Yeah. Just, and neck tattoo. T-shirt. House of Enemies, their al- their album is and then the song Tyrant Usurper Yeah, great. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. Their dynamic really reminds me of the two Mrs. Bloomfields as mm-hmm. well, right? Same same thing here we got going on. Um, she tells Agnes that she wishes the old woman were dead in front of a footman. Yeah, Rosalie doesn't care. Crazy time that she does that. So Rosalie leaves to prep for dinner and Agnes sits and waits and waits and waits and waits and thinks. And then she waits some more. And uh, she says, as I was not rich enough to possess a watch, I could not tell how much time was passing. As a governess, as a lower class working woman, she's not even afforded the luxury of time. And Rosalie doesn't think about that. Mm-mm. She doesn't think about it. Not a great, not a great hostess. Uh, by the time Rosalie comes back, it's dark and Agnes doesn't even have a candle. And she's only had a cup of tea, no dinner, which brings us all back to the carelessness that we saw from Rosalie when she would like visit the cottagers. So she really hasn't been raised to think of anyone but herself. Terrible hostess. And like in the next chapter as well, in chapter 23, the park, the visit just continues. And I'm sorry, guys, Mm. it doesn't get any better because the following morning, no one brings Agnes any breakfast. No. And she hasn't, she's been promised to the use of this library and all of these books, but no one has shown her where it is. She can't find it. And by the time Rosalie does come and find her, after eating her own breakfast, might I add... Yeah, like Agnes has been awake for an hour and a half. So by this point, she's been in that house for 12 hours and she's had a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. I don't think she eats any meals here, by the way. <laughs> There's no mention of it. It really upset me. As someone who loves, like, who needs to eat and gets very angry. Just, yeah. It's too much. So um, then, so there is a, a bit of a scuffle, some friction between them where Agnes does finally put her foot down and the pair have to basically like make terms of how the day is going to go. Like Agnes will go for a walk with Rosalie if Rosalie shows Agnes where the library is and Rosalie will show her where the library is if Agnes promises not to read the books. Yeah. Like, because you still have to come for a walk. Yeah. So I quite like that. That was good. Um, And then we meet someone. As we were strolling in the park, taking, as we were strolling in the park, talking of what my companion had seen and heard during her travelling experience, a gentleman on horseback rode up and passed us. As he turned in passing and stared me full in the face, I had a good opportunity of seeing what he was like. He was tall, 
thin and wasted, with a slight stoop in the shoulders, a pale face but somewhat blotchy and disagreeably red about the eyelids, plain features and a general appearance of languor and flatness, relieved by a sinister expression in the mouth and the dull, soulless eyes. I detest that man, whispered Lady Ashby with bitter emphasis as he slowly trotted by. Who is it? I asked, unwilling to suppose that she should speak so of her husband. Sir Thomas Ashby, she replied with dreary composure. And, um, that's it. That's all we get with Thomas Ashby. I know. <laughs> I'm so annoyed. Love us. I would love a scene. A like, domestic she's a house scene. Guest, just like a couple more scenes. A meal. Some, give a her a meal. sandwich. Uh, so Rosalie admits that she should have listened to Agnes and that she did not know who her husband was when she married him. But she also kind of just is like, it's too late to regret that. Like, my mum shouldn't mm-hmm. have pushed me into it. I thought I was just going to have my own way and do what I wanted. And for a while, it sounds like Sir Thomas was letting her just get away with what she wanted to do, but not anymore. And she just wants him to leave her alone, like in London, or he can Mm -hmm. stay in London and she can be at the house with some friends. But he's not having it. She says she feels like a prisoner and a slave. And again, she calls out this double standard that women and wives are held to. But this time it's her experience as a wife rather than a single woman. The moment he saw I could enjoy myself without him and that others knew my value better than himself, the selfish wretch began to accuse me of coquetry and extravagance. Okay, aside. Come on, Rosalie. That, he's not imagined that, has he? Yeah, okay. he hasn't imagined it, no. Uh, and to thing. abuse and to abuse Harry Melton, whose shoes he was not worthy to clean. And then he must needs have me down in the country to lead the life of a nun, lest I should dishonour him or bring him to ruin, ruin, as if he had not been ten times worse in every way with his betting book and his gaming table and his opera girls and his lady this and his missus that and his bottles of wine and the glasses of brandy and water too oh i would give ten thousand worlds to be miss murray again it's too bad to feel life health and beauty wasting away unfelt and unenjoyed for such a brute as that she exclaimed uh, exclaimed she fairly bursting into tears at the bitterness of her vexation and she is right yeah, he, she's yeah, not she's doing totally anything right. that he isn't doing. And like, mm-hmm. I know that there there were a couple of times where Agnes would say like, oh, Rosalie should marry Hatfield or she should marry Lord uh, Sir Thomas because they're the perfect match. But they're not equal and he can lock mm-hmm. her up and he can yeah. keep her at the house and he can continue doing what he wants and just stop her from ever seeing anyone, which is what mm-hmm. happens in The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. So Agnes does say goodbye to Rosalie after just a few more days. Rosalie does try and get her to stay for longer, but for Agnes, like, the trip just cannot end fast enough. Like, where mm-hmm. is Mr. Weston, you know? Yeah, um, he's not there. He's she not hasn't there. eaten. She's, She's not go. had anything to eat. It's been like six no. days. She can barely stand up. Uh, she considers it additional proof of Rosalie's unhappiness that she would actually cling so much to Agnes being there. Uh, when you know once upon a time everything Agnes liked or represented was just the complete opposite of what Rosalie wanted and that Mm -hmm. if Rosalie had had half of her heart's desire she wouldn't want Agnes with her at all so um 
A few days after Agnes's return home, she wakes up early and goes for a walk on the beach. It's not even 6 a.m. and it's a school holiday. But you know what? She's not going to have a lion. No, Hannah. She's going to see the sunrise on the beach. I think that's great. I'm into it. So um, just as she's deciding to walk a little further and head back, a dog appears and it is Snap. And she picks up the little dog and kisses it repeatedly and turns around. And there she sees Mr. Weston, who is just crawled out of the sand like a swamp creature. So rude. (laughs) So they do that like small talk business, um, which is crazy because I think at reading this, I was just like, what? 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 Yeah. (laughs) So many questions. Agnes is surprised at her own composure, given her surprise at seeing him. And it's uh, just gone seven. And we know that because Mr. Weston has a fancy new gold watch. Hmm, he's coming up in the world. Um, Mr. Weston asks what part of town she lives in and admits that he's been looking for her. We knew it. Come on, of course. He asks if he uh, can be introduced to her mother. So taking all the proper steps here. And to take the privilege of an old friend and look in on her once in a while Uh, To both these, Agnes agrees. He tells her he has a good house in a pleasant neighborhood, earns 300 pounds a year, and wishes only for a companion to warm his long, dark, lonely nights. Hint, 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 Agnes. I've been looking for you. Here's all my, here's my money situation. She's such a good Tinder bio. I, yeah. Single, 30-something-year-old man. I've got a good house in a pleasant neighborhood. I earn 300 pounds a year. I'm just looking for a companion for my long, dark, lonely nights. Um, Mm -hmm. No, the dog in my picture isn't mine. It's my future girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. He looked at me as he concluded, and the flash of his dark eyes seemed to set my face on fire, Agnes says. Oh, so I just wanted to, so I've got this theory, right? Mm, so you know she's yeah. blushing here. And so we know that Agnes is a non-reliable narrator and she doesn't tell us mm-hmm. everything. She skips a lot of scenes. And we've been talking about the fact that she hasn't been able to say anything. And I know, I know that there were some mm-hmm. doubts about why Mr. Weston would pursue someone who isn't like giving him any signs. But I remember mm-hmm. reading that and thinking like the flash of his dark eyes seemed to set my face on fire. Like... There must be all of these instances where Agnes is giving him all of the signs or like blushing or like looking away or not or like getting tongue tied. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so she's not been able to flirt, but that doesn't mean she's not expressing herself. Yes. Yes. There is definitely some nonverbal like communication going on here. Yeah. So um, then Mr. Weston starts to visit on the regular and he's talking mostly with her mom and Agnes admits to being almost jealous of their like free way of speaking. Um, But she doesn't wholly regret it because though I occasionally regretted my own deficiencies for his sake, it gave me great pleasure to sit there and hear the two beings I loved and honored above everyone else in the world discoursing together so amicably, so wisely and so well. I was not always silent, however, nor was I at all neglected. I was quite as much noticed as I would wish to be. There was no lack of kind words or kinder looks, no end of delicate attentions too fine, too subtle to be grasped by words, and therefore indescribable, but deeply felt at heart. 
And I think, you know what, I think this is, so I think the last few chapters just are doing this thing where they are calling back so many scenes, more than a lot of the books we read. It's just like beat after beat after beat. It's like, remember Mm -hmm. that bit where this happened? So if you remember the last time she felt jealous about not being able to speak as freely and as comfortably with someone, it was when Rosalie was walking with Mr. Weston just ahead of her and completely cut her out of the conversation. And so she's making Mm -hmm. the point here to say like, this isn't that. Yes. She doesn't need to perform for him. I no. think that's the other yeah. thing. Um, so very soon after, like, formalities are dropped and he begins to call her Agnes. Lovely. Finally. Um, so he takes her up the hill to watch the sunset and halfway up the hill, he brings up all of the other birds in town and tells her that he's gotten to know them all, some better than others. But actually, there's only one person that he's crushing on. And that is surprise, surprise her. Be wild if they like threw a curveball at you. And he's like, listen, yeah. there's this gal I'm interested in. Her name is Mary. Great. Um He then lays out everything she might object to. So he's asked her mom. Of course, mom has said yes. He's asked her mom to live with them. And she has said no. She wants to work. And uh, so he asks Agnes if she loves him. And she simply says yes. And here I pause. My diary from which I have compiled these pages goes but little further. I could go on for years, but I will content myself with adding that I shall never forget the glorious summer evening and always remember with delight that steep hill in the edge of the precipice where we stood together watching the sunset, watching the splendid sunset mirrored in the restless world of waters at our feet with hearts filled with gratitude to heaven and happiness and love almost too full for speech. They marry. She never regrets it call back to the letter about her mom and dad and because we stand a last line here we go and now i think i have said sufficient that's it that's it guys that's all you get (sighs) so that's it that's the end uh that's the old end of agnes gray huh that's it also i wrote bad notes at some point the chapter which is the sands totally just merged into another chapter which is the conclusion, but I just didn't like indicate where that happened. So it's time to hear what all of you guys have been saying this week. Um, I I think that uh, Agnes might almost be as divisive as like Fanny Price was. We talked a lot about Agnes last week, so we're not going to get into her as much this week, but I did want to share Dominique's comparison of Agnes to Jane Bennett losing Mr. Bingley due to her shyness because it was perceived as indifference. And I want to say, Dominique, you're right. She almost does. But Mr. Weston ain't no Mr. Bingley. And there isn't Mr. Darcy keeping them apart. And, you know. Yeah, you're right. Weston's much more persistent. And um, I do think you hit the nail on the head this week with pointing out some of the nonverbal communication that's going on between the two of them. That's easily missed in the book, which is why it needs an adaptation. Um, But Elsa also brought up the ongoing theme of speech versus body language in her comments. So she said, um, Agnes often comments on the fact that their conversation was quite normal, but the tone of their voices or the way they shook hands, etc., said a little more. It seems quite normal at a time when ladies were not really allowed to express wishes and desires out loud. It's still very relatable to watch her say something 
uh, kind of lame and then spiral down for entire paragraphs about how bad she is at conversation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's that like totally agree. But not everyone is as convinced by Mr. Weston. So Lexington admitted to getting a little bored with him and wished we had heard more of his preaching directly. I love the comparisons of Hatfield and Weston in the middle of the novel and would have liked to have seen more of Weston's religious ideas outright. Mm -mm. But this may be just the church historian and me speaking. Another thing which made me feel bored by Weston, uh, but one which I can excuse, is that he seemed to lack very many flaws. Agnes told us that he has them, but they weren't much displayed. Yeah, I think that's a really fair comment about Mr. Weston. Mm -hmm. I feel like we just don't get an... It's hard. We don't get a lot of him. No. because And also, he yeah. he literally... And we were making fun of it in the read-along, but he just like appears out of nowhere and whispers know, and then yeah. disappears again. It's like... Yeah. He doesn't... He's not like very grounded in the community mm -mm. you know like no. i mean he's grounded within the community in terms of like going to the cottages and stuff but like where does he live he is just walking around where does he live what is happening what happened with his family we never yeah we never really i mean his mum's dead i don't know so anna was surprised to find a happy ending saying i was thoroughly expecting a conclusion where western does fall for rosalie can't get over her and then dooms them both to misery and wow. I thought that he was going to marry her and it was going to be like Lydgate and Rosamond in Middlemarch. <laughs> Honestly, oh, wow. I was convinced. Yeah, really? I was like, Weston's marrying Rosalie. Yeah. Because the thing with the Hatfield thing just felt like she's going to try and ensnare this one church guy and then mm -hmm. knock him back. And then maybe she's going to get like, she's going to catch real feelings for Weston and end up mm -hmm. marrying him. And then maybe like, Agnes would be really old and then Rosalie would die and then Weston would come back as a widow and then they'd finally get married and he'd repent. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's interesting. So I guess Charlotte Bronte wrote my edit of Agnes Gray. <laughs> Um, Rosalind's favorite scene was in chapter 22 when Rosalie shows off her drawing room and uh, pulled this quote. I saw the room's young mistress glance towards me as we entered, as I'd to notice how I was impressed by the spectacle. And accordingly, I determined to preserve an aspect of stony indifference. But this was only for a moment. Immediately, conscience whispered, why should I disappoint her to save my pride? No, rather, let me sacrifice my pride to give her a little innocent gratification. And I honestly looked around and told her it was a noble room and very tastefully furnished. I feel like the scene is a counterpoint to the scene where Agnes is so unwilling to indulge, Ros to indulge Rosalie, even for a second and being happy about how pretty she looked at the ball. Here, they've both learned something. Agnes doesn't want to be the, that person anymore. Plus, obviously has much more reason to feel for Rosalie and it's not quite a parallel because she's not using a drawing room to break people's hearts etc but yeah yeah I love that because that's not something that I'd really considered but I think Rosalind is right like mm -hmm. yeah it's a real 
she's grown well, up it's, a bit it's yeah. from that moment right where Rosalind gets married and she's like you know what I forgive her and then all she can do is just try and advise and be kind to her and do better yeah and Agnes is in a better place as well like mm-hmm. think about when she was working at the house as well like she just has no time to herself she's just like she's such a everything's such a burden it's just really yeah. hard to put on a pleasant face and be like yeah you look great when everything just sucks <laughs> but here well, she's she's in a better place she can do it i'm really really glad that she doesn't stay with uh rosalie for much longer though because so bonnie i made this great comment again so mm-hmm. like these are some of these moments where like the uh read long chat just like blows open the book for me and you mm-hmm. just get like this totally different angle. So Bonnie made a comment about wanting to keep Agnes around as an unpaid companion or as she says a sounding board, someone she can pour out all her poor me feelings to. Of course, no consideration is given to Agnes's feeling about being made into an unpaid companion. No concept that Agnes might have her own notions of how to live her life. Room and board will be provided and in return she will be the complaint box. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what Ro- Rosalind, uh, Rosalie is, is kind of thinking or yeah. has got into her head. But I will say, Bonnie, there ain't no room and board. There's room happening. But she's not getting fed. <laughs> so there's no board. Um, Neve felt that the reunion with Rosalie was unsettling, but it was also the first sign of Agnes setting boundaries in that relationship, which I totally agree with. Um, So she offers Rosalie useful advice to help her change. But when that advice isn't accepted, she's happy to leave. I think, yeah. It's honestly the strongest moment for her in the novel, I think. And um, Joy made a great connection between two literary Rosalies, uh, comparing the fate of Rosalie and Agnes Grey to Rosalie in the shuttle, which is great. And if you have not read that, there is a read along in our archives. Yeah, I really liked that. I was Mm -hmm. like, there's so many name nods happening, right? Like, is the shuttle Rosalie named for Agnes Grey, Rosalie? It was published after, and we know yeah. that Frances Hodgson Burnett loved the bronzes. Yeah. Very possible. Could be. You heard it here first, folks. Could be. I, I looked it up. I did try to look I did try to find out. You tried that but, um, yeah. No. Mm, Nothing. No. Yeah. Well. It's just tinfoil hats. So now I know it probably feels like you've been listening to us forever. Because so. you have. <laughs> yes. But we are closing out this week's episode with a special guest, Sharon Wright, who is an author, journalist, and playwright, who will be talking to us about her latest book, The Mother of the Brontes, When Mariah Met Patrick. Well, I really like it because, I mean, it was Anne's stated sort of intention, wasn't it, to tell the truth. So for me, I mean, I know this is not always true and a lot of authors would get annoyed. But, I mean, it, it can be said that many first novels are intensely autobiographical, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's a particularly controversial thing to say that she, she drew a lot of her inspiration from her own experiences in this. So for me, it's, I like it because it's very straightforward. It's not got any crazed gothic plot lines mm-hmm. going on. <laughs> it just feels like a real account isn't it from real experience mm-hmm. and I, I like that kind of writing anyway because I write non-fiction mm-hmm. so maybe and this is just occurring to me maybe this is the closest the 
the Brontes ever came to non-fiction, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But then I am not a literary critic, critic and I can't say that too many times. <laughs> but reading it, I mean, for me, my point of view, obviously, the mother of the Brontes, Mariah's influence, the influence of their parents, especially their parents when they were young and happy and falling in love, because love is a huge theme, isn't it, for all of the Bronte sisters. Mm -hmm. I... Any reference to mothers always jumps out at me. But then I, as I'm always saying, you know, the mother of the Brontes has been ignored pretty much for 200 years. So I don't think we can refer to her too often. <laughs> right. Of course, Anne Bronte was only a little baby when, when her mother died. So what struck me, and I'm sure it stri strikes lots of people, is the figure of Mrs. Gray, mm -hmm. Agnes's mother, who is, is the perfect mother, isn't she, really? I think, I think she's yeah. the perfect mother. But also, I, I thought very strongly when I was reading this, I was thinking, I think this is the sort of mother that Anne would have been or saw herself as being had she ever had children. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And she says at one point, doesn't she, the, um, that she was active and busy and independent, something like that. Mm -hmm. A very sort of interesting role model. But I think what's interesting, obviously, right at the off, she says, you know, that her mother was from the upper classes and she married a penniless clergyman for love. And for this, she was disowned by her well-off family, but her mother never regretted it, never looked back. And it was an absolute love match, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, Mariah was also an upper class woman, a gentlewoman who married a penniless clergyman for love. But by the time Mariah married him, she was, both her parents were dead. And also they were a very religious, evangelical family so marrying a clergyman evangelical from the evangelical tradition would have absolutely met their approval and her uncle Fennel approved so that's where it departs again she had six children in the book didn't she and, and um, Anne was one of six don't you find it interesting that she only lets two survive yes I do I do and they're both girls yeah <laughs> yeah make that Make of that what you will. And I just think it's very interesting, wouldn't it, to wonder why she did that. Mm -hmm. But again, I mean, it's very tempting, isn't it, especially when we're having this sort of conversation, to forget it's fiction. Right. But, I mean, there are those parallels all the way through. And it's also true love or nothing, isn't it? And mm -hmm. Mariah was 29 when she married Patrick. And also, when she refers to how old her parents were when they got married, I mean, they're virtually the same ages that her parents were. And I think the, the, the heroes in the book, Mr. Weston, is very much modelled on her father because he was plain speaking, kind. He spoke in, not parables, but very simple stories that his congregation could understand. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't very good looking, was he? Like Mr. Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> the Brontes do like to make their, um, their men Ugly in inverted commas on the outside, but sort of interesting souls, don't they? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they they were do. I, you know, it's funny. I haven't really thought of the Bronte like mar the their parents' marriage as being an inspiration for um, for them just exploring love, which I think is very interesting. I don't think anybody has really, and I, I mean. I've written the, the first biography of Mariah and even mm -hmm. I sort of explore their work now. But again, with that note of caution, this is fiction. Right. And there's always this idea that women only ever write what they know. Right. Well, clearly not true for, say, Wuthering Heights, isn't it? Or mm -hmm. Bella in the Attic in June. 
but there are there are elements aren't there of, of your life that you bring in and I think I think what's interesting about Agnes Grey compared to the tent of Wildfell Hall is that you can see certain themes that develop for the second novel mm-hmm. and she has you know Rosalie who is herself a female rake isn't she really <laughs> she sort of plays with all these men and she also um she thinks she can reform a rake by marrying him which is the big mistake that they make in um, Helen makes in Tenant of Wildfell Hall, isn't it? Yeah. But whereas Rosalie has to, it's seen as her comeuppance really, isn't it? Whereas come the Tenant of Wildfell Hall, then Helen does something about it. She saves herself and she saves her child mm-hmm. in a really controversial way. But I think what also makes me smile is that for in Agnes Grey, it seems to be that happiness is married to a good, clergy, good clergyman, isn't it? Mm-hmm. A vicar for preference, because they got paid more, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so when Mr. Meston goes from his silver watch to his gold watch, it's because he's getting paid more, I think, towards the end. I'll tell you what did make me laugh at rereading it on second reading, because, I mean, obviously, all the children she looks after are absolute monsters, but I quite like Matilda, the one who just likes horses and yeah. swears a lot and likes <laughs> to just go off riding with the groom. But she's 19, isn't she? And it's absolutely... If you remember a student teacher coming in, you just ran them ragged, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and she, has, she has this very sort of optimistic view because Agnes, like Anne, is a bit, was a biddable, bookish, academic child and she just cannot conceive of children who are not like that, can she? No, <laughs> and not at all. Well, it is interesting as well, of course, I didn't pick up on it last time, was that um, she uses a little bit of poetry from a book owned by her mother, her real mother, Mariah, in oh, real really? life, to set out this idea that um, that this is how she set out to teach. Now, Mariah Branwell bought this book, The Seasons by James Thompson, in the year she came of age, 1804. We know that because she's written it in the front. And one of these poems says, delightful task to teach a young idea how to shoot. I think, well, yeah, that's great, isn't it, until you spend time around real children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. And that she just cannot conceive of non-academic children or children who are not bookish like she was, or not biddable like, she, like Agnes is and like presumably Anne also was. <laughs> it's funny how also like motherhood just sort of like hangs over the book. Absolutely. It's really interesting. I feel like that that doesn't happen in any other Bronte book. Well, what you have to remember, of course, with Anne is that she was 20 months old when her mother died. So the one most likely, I think, to have a romanticised view of her mother. Mm-hmm. And she was quite a daddy's girl, wasn't she? He used to call her Annie. And she was always babied in the family by everybody and underestimated, as we know, especially by Charlotte. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of mothers, isn't there? There's Mrs. Gray, who's perfect. Right. There's Mrs. Murray, who's absolutely ruthless. Right. <laughs> All about marrying her eldest off for the money, and even though she knows he's, she knows she's going to be unhappy. There's Rosalie who becomes Lady Ashby and then has a baby that she just refers to as it. Like right. don't know where she thinks it came from. She's a terrible mother so far, but she thought you know there's probably reasons for that. And then there's deluded Mrs. Bloomfield, isn't there? The first, mm-hmm. the first family she goes to who thinks her children are clever and can't understand why Agnes has not um, improved their. <laughs> their manners or their behaviour or their learning. Right. And it's also very happy for her son to be raised 
in what's seen as sort of fine for a boy, you know, the torturing of the birds and the rest of it. Something that again becomes a theme in the tenant, doesn't it? Because Helen is absolutely not prepared for her son to be taught that kind of manhood. It's really interesting. Yeah, it is. But I just think, do you know what really makes me sad when I got to the end of it again? Not sad, but I thought that when, because her mother was from Penzance by the sea, and I think I make... I make a lot of comment about that in my book about the call of the sea and Charlotte particularly cried the first time she saw the sea. But Anne, as we know, loved the sea and she loved Scarborough and she, that's where she died in the end because she thought that might save her, this forlorn hope that she was going to take a sea cure. And that, Agnes, that description at the end where Agnes is walking down to the sea it's so joyful and vivid. She loved the sea. And I think that's her Bramwell side coming out in the writer, in Anne, but not in Agnes. But she has Agnes walking with her mother by the sea. And I think that then, bear with me, that put me in mind of, have you seen that drawing that Anne did of herself? And she's looking out to sea. Yes. And it's actually the, the key image used by the Bronte Parsonage for their... Um, exhibition for her bicentenary this year amid the brave and strong mm-hmm. and I thought I don't know I think this is fanciful but we we like a bit of fanciful discussion yeah absolutely <laughs> it just struck me very powerfully I thought that's where he proposes isn't he, he takes her up to the cliff top and he proposes and that's her happy ever and ever after but Anne's stood there on the cliff top by herself but feeling hopeful I was just thinking, I wonder if she thought one day she'd have her own Mr. Weston sit next to her by the sea. Taking it all the way back, what got you into the Brontes? I'm going to assume because you're from Bradford, it was sort of like yeah. proximity, but. Partly. Um, I did set it out in the forward because I kind of wanted to say what brought me to this. Mm-hmm. And I did. I grew up in Bradford. I did English literature to A-level which is, I don't know what your equivalent is, the end of high school before you go right. to college if you go. And never studied the Brontes, even though you knew the Brontes were part of Bradford history and you were aware of them and the films and everything. Unlike now, where they absolutely are taught in schools. So it was as an adult when I became um, a reporter, I'm a journalist by trade, and my first paper covered Howard. Mm-hmm. But that's when I started covering... The reality, the day-to-day stories that came out from the Parsonage and the Bronze Society and how with people then. And then I went and worked in the West Country, where Mariah's from. So we did that reverse journey in our 20s, mm-hmm. which later came to have resonance for me, actually. And then I just became absolutely obsessed with the mother, thinking, where is the mother in all this? Hundreds of books written about the Brontes. Right, yeah. And their father, their, you know, their second cousin twice removed. But where's the mother? The mother of genius. We hear a lot about the father of genius. And I became absolutely preoccupied with her because she's just been an absence, hasn't she? Even at the parsonage, she's called a shadowy figure. And that brought out the journalist in me, really, the investigative journalist in me. Mm-hmm. And pe- even very... Eminent people said, there's not enough on her, that's why. And I thought, I just, I'm not sure I buy that. I just think, let's go and see. And I had nothing to lose, did I? Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly, an embarrassment of riches, there certainly was enough on her once she went looking properly. And this woman led this amazing life. Wrong before she met Patrick Bronte. 
and then had this astonishing real-life Regency romance, Mm -hmm. and then had this incredibly interesting life with six small children, and then had this absolutely heartbreaking death, and then left this family like no other. It all started with her, didn't it? Mm-hmm. At the heart of it was this love story between her and Patrick. And again, I always think of it like the prequel, you know, before they were yeah. famous. You <laughs> <laughs> put Patrick, don't we, with his white cravat wound around his, his neck and a bit grumpy and all the sort of calumny that was heaped on him by Mrs. Gaskell. But actually, he was very interesting, driven, kind, brave man. And handsome, I think, if you look at his pictures. And she was this incredibly pious, optimistic, independent woman. And when they met, it was an absolute love match. And he never remarried. And that was another thing in Agnes Grey as well, I thought, sort of resonated with me. When she says, she made some reference after the father dies to that being an absolute calamity. And that's it, you know, that was the love of her life. And of course, it was the other way around, wasn't it? Patrick, it was an absolute calamity for him. Mariah was the love of his life. And when she died, he never remarried. I mean, he did make a few comic attempts out of desperation because he had a lot of children. And all those kids. Yeah, I know, and bless him. But you've got to see in context of his grief and his fear and his panic, I suppose. And that's when Anne was a very little baby. When you were working on the book, was there like one story or one thing that sort of unlocked uh, like Mariah for you, essentially? Or what were you excited about, like discovering? I was excited about everything. I was like a kid. Like, oh my God, oh, look at this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm weaving it all together and thinking she's absolutely swimming into view. I gave um, a paper recently and I called it like, Mothering Heights, which I'm still annoyed that I didn't call the book. <laughs> <laughs> Mothering Heights in search of Mrs. Bronte, because for me, the great joy of it was going in search of her and finding her and going to the places where she lived and the archives that have been overlooked or not investigated and the people who live now where she lived then. And then really, really going through the letters because the letters are her hand, her heart and mind. Mm -hmm. I found that really interesting and I spend a lot of time analyzing those letters as a lady of letters but also their place in her romance and her life and her era 1812 was an incredibly turbulent time especially for patrick who had the luddites literally the luddite rebellion happening on his doorstep mm-hmm. quite literally she left behind some uh gosh did she have uh ladies magazines There's... yes so she, interesting yeah. reading material yeah Absolutely. I mean, she was a very pious woman, very religious, obviously. But she also, her and her sister Elizabeth, who became Aunt Bramwell, the one who was saddled with raising the Brontes when mm-hmm. <laughs> died, they loved to read the ladies' magazine, which was incredibly popular for women of that class in the late 18th and early 19th century, especially the late 18th when Mariah was, was growing up down in Penzance. And they were of the class that they could have theirs bound. These made it to Haworth, and we know that because Charlotte writes a letter about absolutely loving reading her mother's gothic romances in the ladies' magazines because this was absolute peak time for gothic storytelling, wasn't it? Yeah. All these fabulous potboilers that had gone week after week with 
supposedly, you know, manuscripts found in the back of a dusty cupboard in a, in a castle. And <laughs> but often with female writers, and that was very interesting for me to trace that, female Gothic. But yeah, I absolutely, one of the things I wanted to do was chart, not her as just this tragic, not just as a mother, not just as a wife, not just as a daughter, not just as a, vic- as a, cl- a clergy wife, but also as a woman in her own right. What was she reading? What was she writing? And she was doing both. And it was fascinating to unpick that legacy in, in the Bronte story that comes, I think, from her absolute love of Gothic fiction, the ghost stories and legends and customs that surrounded her growing up in Penzance, in Cornwall, which is, you know, the Celtic heartland, really. And also the writing she did, we know of at least one tract she wrote, and it's dreadful. It's not dreadfully <laughs> written, it's well written, but I think, and again, this is very subjective, other people disagree, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's called The Advantages of Poverty in Religious Concerns. Yeah. And she's not being ironic when she says The Advantages of Poverty. <laughs> but it's no, it's no better or worse than that evangelical writing of the time I think what's important is that she was writing at all mm-hmm. and she was writing in the hope of publication even though it wasn't published as far as we know okay. because even though the surviving Brontes were very little it would have been part of their family life that women wrote too wouldn't it mm-hmm. you know and the, and the father and the brother as well it, it was normal that women had opinions women wrote them down it wasn't just your dad that wrote it was your mum that wrote as well to whatever degree I think that's formative, even though, as I said, there were very little. Mm-hmm. It would have been talked about, wouldn't it, and it would have been known of. And they certainly had her books, which were well-thumbed, like in Agnes Grey, that they've used. She's used um, one of Mariah's poetry books as a, as a quotation in her first novel. Mm-hmm. I think all these threads are demonstrable, really, and interesting. And also, what was really vexing, and I'm absolutely not the first person to say this, obviously, but the fact that she finished her book before Charlotte finished Jane Eyre, mm-hmm. actually, Anne was the first one to write about, you know, the horrors of being a governess mm-hmm. in a much more relatable way, I think. I mean, I love Jane Eyre, yeah. obviously. And that's a bit of an understatement. <laughs> a lot more going in isn't, on plot-wise, isn't there, in there, Jane Eyre? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like a linear story as well. I like the fact that... Agnes Grey. I mean, although it's it's told in retrospect, which was often the, the habit, wasn't it? But I don't know. You know, I think out of all of, I'm, this might be almost a controversial statement, but I will say out of all of the sisters, I am the saddest that I didn't get to see Anne Bronte's next book. Oh, I know. Because, oh, and that's why, I think that's why when people start sniffling at the exhibition at the Parsonage is when it absolutely pierces you how much you wanted to live, how much you had to do. Mm-hmm. how optimistic she was and how much she had to I think she she was she was emerging wasn't she and you can imagine how she would have over a proper long lifetime emerged from the shadows emerged and become herself mm-hmm. she was the most self-sufficient I think yeah. and then I only read this recently and I don't know where I read it it wasn't my insight but it was that Charlotte called her taciturn didn't she I think it's in the Wordsworth Classics book that I'm reading, edition rather. And she says, um, it's interesting because that, 
It's an interesting word because that means that she was choosing not to talk, not that she was quiet and introverted, but she was choosing not to talk. And that when she was dying, she became a lot more talk talkative. Mm -hmm. You think, oh no. And then Charlotte editing that final poem to make her appear that she was fine with dying. Yeah. Absolutely wasn't, obviously. Like Mariah, again, I think that's another thing that resonates with Mariah's story. Mariah absolutely wasn't fine with dying either. She was 38, she was in agony, she had a husband she loved, and six very small children. And she was mm -hmm. crying out, oh, my poor children, oh, my poor children. And you think, and I, I actually analysed that, and I spent a long time writing the death scenes and the protracted seven months to die and I was really happy that a lot of the response to my book was that they, that people found that an incredibly moving section because I wanted it to be because at the time the evangelical um protestants apps I mean I don't know what your feelings are and I don't want to offend people of faith but they almost fetishize that moment of death Mm -hmm. It's absolutely transcendent that it's just a cannot wait to step out of life and into heaven. And well, that's all right if you're in your 80s and you know that's how you feel. But if you're 38 and you've got six little faces right. looking at you, you don't want to die. And Patrick really struggled with that. And he says in the letter later that, you know, I mean, to the effect that there was a battle going on for her soul at the end, but she she managed to maintain her faith. I mean, she was in so much pain. She was bent double. When she died, her knees were drawn up to her chest. Mm. She died a horrendous death. And he, again, who loved her, he would not let anybody nurse her through the night. So he would nurse her through the night. And then he'd get up, try and make everything normal for the kids, go out and do his parish duties, and conducted, spent a while totting up. He conducted 70 funerals outside of her bedroom window, knowing literally not you know literally that she could be next she could be the next in her grave and her knowing as well hearing the stonemason outside and I found that all very interesting because it is gothic in that sort of broader sense but absolutely true we have Ellen Nussie's description of how death always seemed to surround the parsonage the mechanics of death that the everyday I think it's because you go to the parsonage now and that's Charlotte's room. Mm -hmm. But for me, it'll always be Mariah and Patrick's room. It's where she died. And who knows? I mean, the agony and the fact that he knew she was dying. He couldn't really appease the suffering. He said she suffered more pain than anyone he'd ever seen. And he was a clergyman. He'd been at a lot of deathbeds. So again, sorry. I mean, the reason I was talking about that was Anne didn't want to die either. You, you, you can be a person of faith. And believe in an afterlife without racing to meet it, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. So what would have what would have been their life if Mariah had lived? I think they would have been still their own true selves, but I think that yeah, their social life would certainly have been bigger, I think. There would have been because Mariah would have been more socially adept than Patrick, because of her upbringing, her her class, then they might have been more polished in their manners, but then would that their books have suffered? Certainly that's the theme for them, isn't it? That you know, they live in their own world. And we are back. One of the things that really struck me with this conversation, Lauren, was um, where that mother figure was coming from and mm -hmm. the idea that you have this like missing mother. So Mariah Bronte's gone. 
but also like just really clearly present in the books and the writing that she left behind, which um, as Sharon's kind of pointing out, has like clearly influenced her daughter's writing, but yeah. also like specifically this book with that that poem in there. But I did want to say as well, like I think a lot of Mrs. Gray's coming from Mariah's sister, Aunt Branwell mm-hmm. and Patrick who are left raising the kids. You know, Sharon was describing Patrick's day-to-day while Mariah was dying in her bedroom. And it really reminded me of Mrs. Gray's reaction to her husband's death. And Agnes reflects on active employment as a balm for grief. And I do think that this is something that Anne Bronte would have seen firsthand growing up. Yeah. Uh, So the line in the book is, we often pity the poor because they have no leisure to mourn their departed relatives and necessity obliges them to labour through their severest afflictions. But is not active employment the best remedy for the overwhelming sorrow, the surest antidote for despair? So you've got, you know, like Aunt Branwell is, she's grieving for her sister, Patrick's grieving for his wife and they're just throwing themselves into the care of these children and the community and mm-hmm. kind of getting through it and that's the environment that Agnes, uh, that's the environment that Ambronte grew up in. Mm-hmm. So I want to say a big thank you to Sharon for coming on the show this week. You can find out more about her book and uh, what she's working on next over on Twitter at Sharon Wright Agency. Um, So next week is our last episode of the Agnes Gray read along. We're going to be discussing uh, Behind a Mask by Louisa May Alcott, sort of comparing and contrasting that with uh, Agnes Gray. And uh, we have some incredible final thoughts from our favorite, Dr. Amber. Um, So just be there. I was going to say something else and I was like, what was that? Or be square. Were you going to say be there there or be square? Maybe, maybe, yeah. Or be square. Okay. Now, Hannah, if the good folks want to keep up with us, see what's going on, talk to us a little bit about Behind a Mask, which is crazy and you should read and you should let us know what you think, then Hannah, where do they go to do that? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter. You can eat oh, at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. I'm going to say that one again. You can email us, bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. And a third time for the people at the back, you can email us, bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. <laughs> Actually, just cut that bit out. We don't want people to email us. Um, or you can join our thriving hub of discussion on Facebook by searching Bonnets at Dawn. And we look forward to seeing you there. Thank you.